The reading is from Revelation chapter 3, and it is on page 1235 of the Church Bibles, page 1235, and it's the bottom right-hand corner of the page, uh, verse 7 onwards, to the church in Philadelphia. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come down and fall at your feet, and acknowledge that I've loved you. Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I'll also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I'll write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I'll also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. I think Guy is just in saying that we were the bottom feeders of the uh, snooker competition. We would both get out and then have our own competition between us. He's also right in thinking that I have a differing opinion to him about who was better. <laughs> it was a kind of antipodean competition, and I'm pretty sure Australia came out on top over South Africa. Um, do please keep that passage... Guy, it's my turn now, if you could just... Um, please do keep that passage open. Um, it would be great to have it open to look on at um, as we think about it more. And let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus uh, speaks to the churches. Thank you that he spoke to the, church, to the churches then and continues to speak to the churches today. Uh, please, would you be softening our hearts today to hear what it is that he would say to us. Amen. Well, Lydia was a new convert to Christianity. She was blown away by the goodness of the gospel and filled with joy at her newly found status before God. She uh, marveled at her newly acquired peace that she'd found. It was wonderful for her. But the trouble was that her family uh, weren't Christians. They at best tolerated her new faith. And sometimes uh, worse than that, they, they really wondered whether Lydia had lost the plot a little bit. Lydia was worried that there might be some relationship breakdowns because of it. Uh, And then there was Homer. He was known as a Christian at work. He'd made a point when he first started his job to to mention Jesus so that people would know uh, that he was a follower of Jesus. And he even sometimes took the opportunity to talk to his colleagues about the gospel. But he suspected that it was directly as a result of this that he'd been passed over for promotion. He suspected his bosses questioned whether he had what it took to get the job done because of his unwillingness to make ethically dubious choices. 
another Christian, Helen, uh, had a friend who wasn't a Christian, uh, in fact was a follower of a different faith. And they'd have uh, conversations about this, and they were completely amicable conversations. And though she didn't waver in her faith, she did sometimes feel a little inferior because her friend was an academic and they were full of all kinds of intellectual-sounding arguments for why their religion was the right one. Uh, Helen knew the gospel, uh, but she didn't have impressive-sounding apologetic arguments to back it up with. And then there was Simon. Uh, Simon loved the church. It meant so much to him to be part of a fellowship of believers. He would have loved to have been here this morning uh, for baptisms. But he couldn't help sometimes being disheartened by the size of the church. Even though he uh, felt like a good uh, gathering were there when they met together, given the number of people in the city, it was so very small, and he wondered what difference they could possibly make. I wonder if you can identify at all with Lydia or Homer or Helen or Simon, or maybe all four of them at once. Other than being completely made up by me, uh, what they have in common is that they were all living in the city of Philadelphia in Asia, in Asia Minor at the end of the first century AD, and they were all in desperate need of hearing the words that Jesus directed to them in the book of Revelation. The church in Philadelphia as a whole needed to know where ultimate authority lay to be given present comfort and assured of future hope. That's what we're going to be spending our time looking at this morning. Ultimate authority, present comfort, and future hope. If you've been here over the last weeks, you'll know that you've been looking at these letters to the seven churches that we find in Revelation. Each one is a bit like a spiritual MOT for the church. How is the church doing? What is commendable? What needs fixing? Uh, Numbers are really important in the book of Revelation, and maybe the reason that there are seven churches is that seven is often a number that that represents uh, completeness and wholeness. And if that's the case, then these seven churches, though they were churches in their own right and really existed, might also represent for us the church as a whole. These are letters for the whole church to be listening in on. So as we come to the sixth of the seven letters today, it's as relevant for St. Michael's Chester Square as it was for St. Michael's Philippi, uh, Philadelphia even. So let's listen in to this letter and see what it's saying to us today as well as to them then. Firstly, uh, ultimate authority. We see this in verse 7. Each of the seven letters begins with some information about the one who, who is speaking to them. And in each case, the description helps us to understand what's going to come later on in the letter. And so far, the descriptions have been taken from the amazing vision of Jesus that John has in chapter 1 of Revelation. But here, in the letter to Philadelphia, we get a description of Jesus not found in Revelation chapter 1. Have a look back at verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true. Who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. This is a description taken not from Revelation chapter 1, but from all the way back in Isaiah chapter 22 in the Old Testament. It's part of a prophecy against a guy called Shebna, who was the palace administrator at the time in Jerusalem. Uh, Let me read from verse 20 of chapter 22 of Isaiah. 
In that day, I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. You could be forgiven for never having heard of Eliakim. In fact, he's arguably, arguably not even the most important Eliakim in the Bible. But he points us to Jesus. He was given the key to the house of David. He had the power to shut doors and to open doors, to say who was in and who was out. The passage goes on to say that he was firmly established. And of course, he didn't hold his position forever, uh, but he points to someone who would hold his position forever. Jesus lived and died and rose again and ascended into heaven where he's been given the key of the house of David, the key to his father's kingdom. When he opens a door, it stays open. When he shuts a door, it stays shut. He says who can come in and who can't. He has ultimate authority. And what's more, he always will. His position is secure and permanent. How wonderful for the Philadelphian church to know that the one speaking to them had ultimate authority. Uh, They were a church that was weak in all kinds of ways. Not only are we told that they had little strength uh, later on in verse 8, but the very foundation of of their city, uh, the foundation that it was built on was lacking in strength. They lived in an area that was terribly prone to earthquakes. Less than a hundred years earlier, there'd been an earthquake that completely decimated the city, and it needed to be completely rebuilt. Their existence was precarious on all kinds of levels. Yet the one who spoke to them was the one with ultimate authority. And it's the same for us today, isn't it? We live in a world where we hear of bushfires and plagues of locusts and terrible viruses spreading. And as a church, we may sometimes feel like we're lacking in strength. We're outnumbered. I do feel like there's a a good number of us here this morning, and I don't know how many people there are living in the parish of St. Michael's Chester Square, but I do know that it must be many thousands more than are gathered here. What's more, the culture we live in increasingly disagrees with and disapproves of what the Bible teaches. Our situation may well feel precarious, yet we know that if we are listening in to Jesus, we are listening to the one who has ultimate authority. What he says goes, and what's more, it always will. And wonderfully, what Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia gives them great comfort in the present and sure hope for the future. Let's have a look at it. Firstly, uh, present comfort. Jesus says at the beginning of verse 8, I know your deeds. He'd said the same thing previously uh, to the churches in Ephesus and Thyatira and Sardis. And for each of those churches, it's been at least mixed, if not bad news, that Jesus knew their deeds. Uh, Sometimes having someone know what you've done is not desirable. The deeds of those churches were lacking. They weren't good enough. Mark Twain once said, I once sent a dozen of my friends a telegram saying, flee at once, all is discovered. They all left town immediately. I know your deeds could be very a very scary statement indeed, couldn't it? 
But that's not the case for the church in Philadelphia. For them, Jesus knowing their deeds is a comfort because their deeds have been good. Later in verse 8, he says to them, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Their deeds have been good, and Jesus knows it. And I think that is a comfort in and of itself at the very beginning. If you're anything like me, you quite want someone else to know if you've done something good. I can't clean a room at home without being really keen for my wife to come home so I can say, ta-da, look what I've done. Amazing. Um, And I wonder if the Christians in Philadelphia sometimes uh, felt the same. They might have felt like no one saw their good deeds. They were, they were a weak church in some way. Again, it's not, it's not clear exactly how. Perhaps, uh, again, it was small in number or the people who made up the church were of a, a lower class than many others. They were weak and perhaps they, they felt like what they were doing was unseen by Jesus. But Jesus says, I know your deeds. And of course, if we're serving Jesus, we're not doing it for recognition. But it's still a comfort, isn't it, that Jesus knows uh, that we're serving him. Whether it was uh, Lydia facing family disapproval or Homer struggling to be a Christian at work or Helen trying to stand up to her non-Christian friend's intellect or Simon disheartened by the size of the church or us today identifying with them in their situations or finding it difficult for any other reason, if we are serving Jesus, Jesus says, I know your deeds. There's comfort in that alone. But also in what he says to them in light of it, Back at, the, back at the beginning of verse 8, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that cannot be shut. Given the way Jesus describes himself in the opening line of the letter, it seems that this open door that he has placed before the Christians in Philadelphia is the open door of salvation. He has the keys to the kingdom. He has authority over who enters into it. And uh, he has given them permanent access. He's placed before them an open door that no one can shut. He knows their deeds, and he's given them permanent citizenship in the kingdom of God. This must have been a wonderful comfort to them, since there were those in the city who must have said to them that they really weren't God's people at all. In verse 9, Jesus uh, speaks of those who are of the synagogue of Satan, those who claim to be Jews but are not. Those who belong uh, to the Jewish synagogue in Philadelphia no doubt thought that the Christians at best represented a heretical sect. They'd have thought that they weren't really God's people. But Jesus says, no, they say they are Jews, but they are not. They're not real Jews. They're not the real people of God. That's you, the church. You're the ones who are the real people of God, who've acknowledged the, the true Jewish Messiah, acknowledged that he has come and lived and died and, and risen again and is now reigning with ultimate authority. I have placed before you an open door that no one can close. We can take comfort uh, from the very same promise today. As we strive to keep Jesus' word and not deny his name in our day-to-day lives, we can take comfort in the truth that however difficult that might get, Jesus has placed before us an open door that no one can close, the door that allows us entry into God's kingdom and assures us citizenship there. And Jesus goes on to promise the uh, the church that the very ones who deny their membership of God's kingdom will come to see how mistaken they are. 
Verse 9, I will make those who are, this, who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. God promised his Old Testament people that those who oppressed them would bow down before them and call them the city of the Lord. The Philadelphian Jews uh, would still have been holding on to that promise, but it turns out that the, that the fulfillment of it uh, would be their acknowledgement of the followers of Jesus, their acknowledgement that they were the true people of God loved by him. Uh, for some of them, that may have happened as they were converted to Christianity, but it will ultimately happen once and for all when Jesus returns and is acknowledged for who he is, the one with ultimate authority. And Jesus promises to keep his people until then. Verse 10, since you have kept my command and endured patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Notice that there's a keeping there and also a being kept. Jesus' people keep his commands. They, they, they try and obey Jesus' commands to them, but he also keeps them in that, bringing them through whatever trouble is to come. It's a, a mutual keeping, but it's not an equal keeping. It's a bit like when a child and a parent cross the, ro- cross the road holding hands together. They're both actively holding each other's hands, but it's really the child's hand that is secure in the hand of their parent. There is comfort for the Philadelphians and for us today if we're followers of Jesus. The comfort that Jesus knows our service of him, that he's assured our place in the kingdom, of God, and that he'll keep us until he comes again, when he'll be seen for who he is. There's great comfort for us in the present and up until Jesus comes again, but there's also hope following on from that. It's a wonderful hope, and it's our our final point, future hope. I'm coming soon, says Jesus at the beginning of verse 11. Um, Like I know your deeds, Jesus said, I'm coming soon to the churches in Ephesus, Pergamum, and Sardis. And again, for those churches, there was a note of threat in that. It wasn't good news that Jesus was coming soon because they weren't ready for him. But again, with the church in Philadelphia, it was good news. Their faithfulness to Jesus meant that they could look forward to his coming again with eager anticipation. And we see why. Verse 11, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. What an amazing future hope the Philadelphian church had. Those who lived as outcasts in the world, in the new creation after Jesus returned, would be welcomed into God's house, and their residence there would be permanent and stable. Jesus uses the imagery of of pillars. Look at these uh, pillars around the church. It must have been a wonderful thought for the people who who didn't know when the next earthquake might hit uh, to uh, in this reality, uh, in this current uh, world, to know that in the future world they would be as stable as strong pillars, uh, that they would never be shaken, that they would never leave the temple of God. And they'd not only be welcomed in, they'd belong there also. Jesus goes on, I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Turns out that Jesus not only has the key of the house of David, David, but also seems to have a great big permanent marker pen. 
Uh, perhaps you've seen the, the Toy Story films uh, where the toys have the, the name of their owner written on the sole of their shoes. And whenever they see that name, it reminds them uh, that they are loved, that they belong, uh, even that they have a purpose. And it seems here to be similar uh, to me. In the new creation, Jesus' people will belong to the extent that they will have not one, but three names written on them. I suspect maybe metaphorically written on them, but who knows? I'm, I'm open to it being real. They'd, they'd have the name of God the Father, showing that they belong to him. The name of the city of God, showing that they belong to the people of God. And Jesus' new name. Having not denied his name in this world, they'll be marked with his new name in the next world. They'll know him at a whole new level, and they'll be marked as his forever. Then there will be a wonderful welcome, security, stability, and belonging. For the Philadelphian church, it's an amazing future hope that should have helped them in the present to carry on with their patient endurance. And it's the same for us today. No doubt there will be times when we identify with the Philadelphians, when though we strive to keep Jesus' word and to not deny his name, it's difficult to do so. When it threatens to damage relationships, when others uh, look down on us for it, when brainy secular humanists question our intelligence, when the work of the church looks meager and ineffectual to us. But we can take comfort and have hope even then. There's always the, the danger um, with God's word uh, that people will hear it and instead of the weak being comforted and the comfortable being challenged by it, the opposite will happen and the comfortable will feel even more comfortable and the weak will feel entirely hopeless. Um, don't let that be the case here with this passage. If we claim to be followers of Jesus, yet we uh, never keep his word and regularly deny his name, we and we, we're not patiently enduring, then we shouldn't be finding comfort in this passage, because the Philadelphians were. We need to read this letter along with the other six letters and see the challenges that there are in those letters and feel those challenges, if that's appropriate. And in fact, I suspect that to some extent, uh, that is the case for each of us, that we need to see some, some of those challenges that are in the other letters. But I suspect there's also times for almost all of us when we feel that weakness, of the Philadelphians, when we are trying to follow Jesus, but for whatever reason, it's hard. And when that's the case, there is great comfort for us here. We know that the one with ultimate authority is with us, uh, giving us present, com present comfort and future hope, making open the door to salvation and promising to be with us and to keep us until he gives us a permanent welcome and belonging with him in eternity. Uh, perhaps you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus. Thank you for, for listening into all this. Um, but perhaps there are still things that have sounded familiar to you. Uh, perhaps you are familiar with some of these things, with helplessness in the face of everything going on in the world, or feeling unnoticed, or like life is sometimes hard, or even um, even all of those things. Perhaps Perhaps none of those things, though. Perhaps you feel really secure in life, but you do wonder what's going to happen after life. Know that the Bible says that there is someone in ultimate authority who's ready to open the door of salvation to you and hold it open, to give you comfort now and hope for the future. It's worth finding out more about him just in case that's true. Let's uh, finish with the words of Jesus in verse 13. 
Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray.